Thanks, Anna, very much. Uh, please do keep that passage open. John chapter 14, uh, page 1082. And uh, we prayed in that song, didn't we? So uh, let's, let's come to God's word together. If I can get my Kindle to work. What is it that makes the Christian life possible? How can someone who wants to follow Jesus actually do it? I wonder if there was a technique that you need to practice to discover real spiritual joy. Or maybe there is a skill you need to master to get spiritual confidence. Are there experiences you should seek or habits you should cultivate if you want to keep going following Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're not yet sure about the Christian faith. You're not following him. It may be totally brand new to you and you're just exploring it for the very first time. Or you may be in the process of rediscovering it. Either way, somehow you find yourself back amongst God's people, people following Jesus. And you look at them and you know that they're not perfect, but you wonder if you could do the same things then. But how could you do that? How could you start for the very first time? How could you get started all over again? Or maybe, and I know this is many of us here today, you are following Jesus. It is real in your heart and in your day-to-day. Uh, church is important to you. Home group is valuable. Christian friendships are, are, are indispensable. Prayer and Bible reading keep you going day by day, week by week. But despite all those good and valuable things, you just can't help feeling that at exactly the same time, it's impossible. You just cannot do it under your own sting or with the assistance of your friends, your Christian friends. What is it that makes the Christian life possible? Well, Jesus knows that his first disciples are soon going to be asking exactly the same questions. He's coming to his, the end of his last meal with them. His betrayer, Judas Iscariot, has just left the room to go and seek out his enemies. And uh, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's about to die to secure their place in heaven. He's spoken to them about how he is the full, final, perfect revelation of God the Father, that they can know God, they can be sure of going to heaven. But still the question remains, what next? How can his first disciples keep going once he's gone? And so to paraphrase the Archbishop's brilliant words from Monday, Jesus doesn't answer with a how, but a who. It's not how is the Christian life possible, but who makes it possible. It is God the Holy Spirit. And the next few chapters of John's Gospel contain some of the deepest and richest teaching of the Spirit anywhere in the Bible. But as we start to explore them today, let's not come to them thinking Jesus is delivering a theology lecture to um, super-duper intelligent theology students. Because if we find it that way, we'll either think it's kind of beyond us or we'll just find it dull and dry and a bit boring. And we might switch off. Now, what Jesus is speaking about is unbelievably exciting. He is introducing his friends to the third person of the Trinity. He is not explaining how a force works, like my son's teacher is currently explaining to the class how electricity works. He is inviting, as it were, the eternal God into the room and saying to his friends, come and meet him. 
And so let's respond to that same invitation. Let's get to know God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the eternal Trinity, just a little bit better together today. Not to fill our heads with knowledge about him, but to allow our hearts to be warmed by him, our lives to be helped by him. There are two lessons. Here's the first thing. The Father gives the Spirit for our relationship with Jesus. The Father gives the Spirit for our relationship with Jesus. At verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. For the first time, Jesus speaks of his disciples' love for him. He's spoken of his love for them, and he's spoken of the kind of love they need to have for each other. And now he speaks for the first time of their love for him. And he says that love and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Together they're the mark of every genuine follower of Jesus. But he knows that they cannot love him and obey him in their own strength, under their own steam. And so Jesus prays for them, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Our version calls the Spirit an advocate, and that kind of conjures up images of kind of people in robes and the royal courts of justice or whatever it is, legal assistants, defence lawyers. Other versions call him a comforter, but that might sound a little bit like a nice warm electric blanket, or a counsellor, which makes us think of someone we go to for therapy, or a helper, uh, which just sounds a little bit bland. So who is he? Who is God the Holy Spirit? Well, the word itself comes from the verb, which means to call alongside, to encourage, to exhort. And so all of those translations in different ways are valuable, helpful, but they're also incomplete in different ways. But the word just before the word advocate, I think is the key word to understanding what it means. You notice that, I will ask the Father and he will send you another advocate. We all know what the word another means. In other words, Jesus was an advocate, a counsellor, a helper, a comforter for his disciples, and God, he is going to ask the Father to send another because Jesus will not be with his disciples for, for much longer, but the Spirit will be with them forever. You see, in some extraordinary sense, the Spirit of God is Jesus' substitute. He takes Jesus' place. Jesus draws alongside his disciples in his earthly life. He has comforted and counseled and helped them. He has been their advocate and secured their place in heaven by dying for them. So he's about to do that. But from now on, it's as if the Spirit steps into Jesus' shoes and the Father gives him for the disciples' ongoing relationship of love and obedience with the Son. And Jesus continues to press home that profound reality, verse 17. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives, literally remains with you and will be in you. Now the unbelieving world all around the disciples, the unbelieving world all around us, is tuned in only to materialistic reality. It's, logic is very simple. If you can't see something or touch something, it just can't exist. But the disciples have been tuned in to spiritual reality. They, they can't see the spirit of truth. Of course they can't see him, he's a spirit. But they have come to know Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, and so of course they know the spirit of truth as well. He remains with them. 
There is a brilliant, wonderful contrast here with the way the Spirit operates in the Old Testament. Do you know in the Old Testament, the Spirit kind of comes upon people suddenly and then leaves suddenly. So he rushes upon a warrior to enable him to fight a battle, and then he departs once the battle is fought. Or he comes upon a prophet to enable the prophet to speak God's word, and then once the prophet has spoken God's word, he leaves again. He is gloriously and unpredictable, unknowable, if you like. But the Spirit's role changes with the coming of the Son. Jesus is going back to the Father in heaven. But the Spirit will remain with the people of God on earth forever. So the, the Father gives the Spirit to establish that permanent connection, that deep spiritual relationship between Jesus and his disciples. It's an extraordinary promise. But before it's fulfilled, something equally wonderful must happen. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise, literally know, that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So Jesus, as it were, takes a little step sideways, but he's still on the same thing. He is not saying that he is the Spirit, or that he'll kind of come wrapped up or carried along by the Spirit. We don't confuse the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus is reassuring his disciples that they will actually see him again before the Spirit comes. Because we can imagine, can we, in the room thinking, well, Jesus, this all sounds very well and good, but, but what about you? When are we going to see you again? And so Jesus fills that gap and he answers any unspoken questions. He will come to them physically in the upper room. He will show them his hands and his feet and his side. And the world won't see him because the doors are locked. But on that day, verse 20, in other words, the day of resurrection and every day beyond, the disciples will be absolutely convinced of Jesus' relationship with the Father and of their relationship with him. See, Jesus is heading back to heaven and leaving his disciples. But his disciples do not need to worry that they are leaving him all alone. Jesus will share his resurrection life with them because the Spirit lives with them and is coming to live, to remain in them. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So the Spirit has just faded a little bit into the background of the conversation. But Jesus hasn't forgotten the Spirit as he speaks. He will show himself to his disciples in his unique resurrection appearances. But he is also going to reveal himself over and over and over again into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now it might be that we're sitting here thinking this is a bit hard to understand. Well if we're thinking that, don't worry, because Jesus' disciples found it hard to understand too. Verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? It's a very reasonable question. Do you remember Jesus has said to his disciples on numerous occasions that he's going to come with the glory of God from heaven and every eye will see him. And Judas is thinking, but didn't you say that? How come you're going to show yourself to us and not to the world? But Jesus isn't thinking about his final return as the judge. Not yet, not at the moment. Verse 23. Jesus replied, 
Anyone who loves me and, and will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Intriguingly, the word home is the same as the word translated rooms in verse 2. Do you remember verse 2? Just look across. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So Jesus guarantees our room in the father's house by his death on the cross. The Spirit guarantees Jesus' room in our hearts when he comes to us. That is what the Spirit does. The Father gives the Spirit for our relationship with Jesus. Now, before I became Christian around age 1920, the idea of this was just baffling. I met Christians for the very first time who said, you know, Christianity isn't a religion, it's about having a relationship with Jesus. And I, I thought, what are they on about? It makes no sense at all. And maybe it sounds like that to you today, it sounds odd and absurd and even laughable. I sat there in rooms in university laughing with people about this idea. Maybe you, there are loved ones in your family who, who think it's just crazy to talk about relationship with Jesus. But it is honestly the heart of the Christian faith. God is personal. He's not an it or a thing or a force. And he invites us into personal relationship with himself. Just think back a week. The thousands who laid flowers and the billions who watched on TV did so because in a sense they felt connected to the Queen. They felt as if they had some sort of relationship with her. And everyone did kind of know her. But only a handful of people, I guess, maybe a few more than a handful, really knew her. But the Father gives the Spirit so that we can really, truly know the Son. Everyone. Some relationships are long-lasting, others are fleeting, some are secure, some are fragile, but the relationship we can have with Jesus is the most permanent and secure we can ever have. He is not with us physically, but he makes his home in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. We might think that that is less real because it's not physical, but no, it is more real because it is guaranteed by God the Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Spirit is available for everyone. And we have already received it if we are starting to follow Jesus, if we've already followed Jesus. And if we're sitting here today and we know that we haven't received him, well, we can receive him simply by inviting Jesus into our life and trusting him and his death in our place and accepting him as our Lord. And if you know that you haven't yet done that, why not do it? Why not? Why delay? Why not do it today? Because Jesus prays this prayer that the Father would send the, the, the other advocate, and that is a prayer that he loves to answer every time. But what if we're here and we're still unsure, and we think, well, how could I believe for the first time? What if we do believe and we have received the Spirit, but we want our faith to be more confident? The Christian life without a more secure faith sometimes seems impossible. Our next lesson is another wonderful and complementary work of the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit for our faith in Jesus. The Father sends the Spirit for our faith in Jesus, verses 25 to 31. All this I have spoken while still with you. 
But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So Jesus taught his disciples for a little while, three years, but the Spirit has all the time in the world to keep on teaching them. He's not limited by time. And it's not like when our kids choose their A-levels or they choose which subjects to drop at GCSE. The Spirit doesn't teach a brand new class. He teaches us, if you can call it like this, an in-depth revision course. He continues the job that Jesus began. And it's just worth noting though at this point that this, first of all, is a lesson for these disciples before it is a lesson for you and me. The Spirit had a very specific task in the first days and weeks and years after the resurrection. That was for these disciples. They were confused and frightened. They fled when Jesus was arrested. They locked the door over Easter weekend. They didn't understand the significance of all that they had seen and heard over the last three years. But after the Spirit was sent, after he enrolled them in that revision class, well, the evidence that they'd seen began to make sense in their lives. A couple of very interesting point in, points in John's Gospel where we see that. Do you remember in chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple and he talks about them raising uh, the temple to the ground and then him rebuilding the temple in three days. And they just don't understand it. Chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, do you remember the time in chapter 12 when he rides into Jerusalem and the crowds welcome him as the king and they just don't really understand it? Again, only after Jesus was glorified, did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to them. So neither the author of this gospel nor any of the other apostles, any of the other disciples understood the meaning of everything that they saw at the time. But the Spirit taught them. He, he went deep into the stuff that they'd seen and heard. He taught them so that they could look back on Jesus' life and remember his teaching and think it makes sense now. And then the, this author in particular, John, wrote it down so his readers could be confident too. Not just in their heads, but in their hearts. So today when we read John's Gospel, but by extension the whole New Testament, we can be absolutely convinced about the historical realities of Jesus' life and death, and the spiritual meaning of those things. It's not as if the apostles kind of did a, like a pencil sketch, and then they just, or sorry, it's not as if Jesus gave them a pencil sketch and then they just coloured it in with whatever colours they took their fancy. Now the Holy Spirit filled in what they already knew as he took Jesus' place as their teacher. So the Father sends the Spirit for our faith in Jesus. Now this is thrilling, this really ought to be thrilling for us because it means that this book we hold in our hands is really truly unlike any other book we ever pick up off any shelf. The New Testament was written by Jesus, sorry, it was um, by men whose classroom teacher was Jesus and whose PhDs were supervised by the Holy Spirit. 
live as healthy. The Father sent the Spirit for their faith in Jesus and through them for our faith in Jesus too. There is no need for confusion, no need for fear, no need for doubt. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's another little sideways step like he made in the first half of the passage when he said he wasn't going to leave them as orphans. See, they're worried, aren't they? They're worried about him leaving, but there's no need to be worried. Jesus' death and resurrection is the door through which he offers peace to all who trust in him. We look at the world and we long for peace. The absence of human conflict is not the kind of peace Jesus is talking about. It is restored relationship with God, deep, lasting, spiritual peace. Paul describes it as the peace that guards our hearts and minds against anxiety, or the peace that that binds God's people together in perfect unity. It's another way in which the Spirit of God gives disciples of Jesus secure, unshakable faith. We can have joyful, peaceable faith because Jesus has gone to the Father and the Father has sent the Spirit to us. Let's continue, verse 28. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now just bear with me a minute, we're going to get a little bit technical, okay? Um, I promise it's going to be useful. And the theme is still about God sending his Spirit into the world. Do you notice those words, the Father is greater than I? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he does not mean that God is a, the Father is a greater type of God, or that the Father is more fully God. That is what uh, people in the early days who were called Arians believed. It's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. No, let me read from another one of our creeds, which we don't tend to say here in church because it's ridiculously long. This is a couple of lines. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So when Jesus is talking about his Father's greatness, I'm pretty sure he is talking about the greater glory that the Father enjoys in heaven. The glory which Jesus left behind when he came into the world to be a man, which he is looking forward to going to enjoy again with his Father in heaven. The creed continues like this. It says, speaking of Jesus, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity, because he's left that heavenly glory behind when he becomes a human being. So it's as if at this point Jesus is just correctly, gently correcting his disciples, because they are viewing things too much from their perspective. They're thinking, what is it going to be like for us when you've gone? Jesus is saying to them, just think about how good it's going to be for me when I go. He's going back to a place of greater glory, and his disciples should look at that and think, that is brilliant for Jesus. For his sake, but also for their own sake. Because 
when the moment comes for Jesus to go away to his Father for the final time, to, to that wonderful place of glory, that is the time, 40 days later, 50 days later, sorry, when the Father sends the Spirit to fill their hearts with joyful, confident faith. Verse 29, I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. He's talking again of his own physical resurrection and the belief that they will come to at that point. The writer of this gospel, chapter 20, verse 8, sees the empty tomb and he believes. The others rejoice when they see Jesus in the upper room. Even doubting Thomas believes and confesses Jesus as Lord and God. So the Spirit takes the predictions of the future and he helps the first disciples to remember them and then he produces in their hearts joyful faith. It's a beautiful spiritual alchemy. And he does the same for us today, not when we are obsessed for our own joy and our own satisfaction, not when we come to the Bible thinking, what can I get out of it for myself? But when we're hungry for the Bible to show us Jesus' glory, and we're hungry for him to speak about himself to us. That is the great and extraordinary work of God the Holy Spirit. God sends him for our faith in Jesus. And not just for our faith, if we already know Jesus today, but even for the faith of those who are deeply hostile and opposed to him. Verse 13. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn and may know that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The devil is about to do his worst, but it's all part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan to give sinners like you and me personal relationship with himself and a permanent place in heaven. Our love and obedience to Jesus is vital, but it means nothing unless he first loved and obeyed his Father, which he's just about to do. As he says to his disciples, come now, let us leave. We, um, we visited a country show in the summer, and one of those stands um, was a rowing team that was about to row across the Atlantic. It was basically a spaceship, not really a rowing boat, and it was going to be two cousins in the crew, but supported by family and all sorts of other people, sponsors, designers, everybody else behind them. It looks like an impossible journey, but with backup, it's possible. And it's like that with Christian life. It's impossible, but with backup, it's possible. The idea of having a relationship with God, our Creator, is absurd. It's just down to us. The challenge of believing in Jesus is beyond our natural faculties, beyond our doubts and questions and fears, but wonderfully, gloriously, the Christian life is possible because there's backup. Because the Holy Spirit is our helper and counsellor and comforter and advocate. It's not a force to master or manipulate, but a person to know and enjoy. He is given for our relationship with Jesus. He is sent for our faith in Jesus. Jesus prayed to the Father to send the Spirit. Hallelujah. God answered that.